1 through 20, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 20. Fret not yourself because of evildoers, be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth against him. But the Lord laughs. I invite you to turn with me this afternoon once again, and we'll pick up from verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read to verse 13, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 6 through 13. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we responded to them, we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. So we were closing this afternoon with the thought that God disciplines us. One of the reasons God disciplines us by way of suffering, trials, adversities is to demonstrate his love. And we established that love is not incompatible with discipline. In fact, to make the point, the word of God in referring to the whole matter of rearing children, the Bible says that when we refuse to discipline our children, we are in fact hating them. 
And the writer here asserts that God does discipline his children. He disciplines them not to hurt them. He disciplines them so as to develop them, so as to mature them. Just think of it. What father would there be who would stand by and see his son, his daughter, put their finger, say, in an electrical socket with wires exposed? That would be something very cruel. In fact, what would we think of such a father? And the truth is, when we look and make that, when we look at that situation and we draw the analogy, we can say that God loves us too much. He loves us too much not to correct and discipline us when we stray from Him. He loves His children too much not to chasten them so as to keep them in the right path. All of this to say that the fact that His people suffer, the fact that they are called to endure hardship is evidence then not of his punitive anger, but of his paternal affection. In other words, he's not punishing them out of anger. Rather, he's exercising his fatherly love and care for them. And using such bitter experiences as an occasion for disciplining, for training them in the way of Christian growth and maturity, God, we would say, that is showing his loving concern for the spiritual well-being of his children. Now we come secondly to consider why God chastens, why God exercises discipline in the lives of his children, and that is to differentiate his children from those who are not. To differentiate his children from those who are not. That is to say, to make it clear and evident those who are truly his children. And we see that in verses 6 through 8. Beginning with verse 6, here's what the Word of God says. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And right away, the thing that strikes us as we read verse 6 is that when we become children of God, when we become saved, that does not mean, it does not necessarily mean that we become sinless. It does not mean that we become perfect. It doesn't mean we do not have sin in our lives. It doesn't mean we do not have flaws. Why? Because the very fact that God, the Bible says, chastises every son he receives, says that though redeemed, we are still beset with sin. In fact, the word he uses here for chastise, and it goes without saying, it means to whip or flog. What the Word of God is saying here, that every child that of his that he receives, every son, every daughter of his that he receives, everyone that is born again, sooner or later he chastises them. And that is a lifelong process. Another truth that's suggested here in verse 6 is that when you and I are passing through seasons of trials, seasons of adversities, such experience is not unique to us. We are not the only ones who are passing through this um, happening to us. The text says that the Lord, notice, he says he chastises every son whom he receives. And so when suffering as a believer in Christ, we must resist the temptation to say, well, what is this that is happening to me? How is this happening to me? How in the world is this happening to me? Why we should not say that? Because the word of God says here, he chastises, he disciplines every son whom 
he receives it. That is why First Peter chapter 4 and verse 12 will tell us that when we're passing through suffering, when we are being afflicted, we are not to think it's strange what is happening to us. According to First Peter chapter 5 verse 9, we should understand that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. Next note, verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Interestingly, the word that is used there for discipline, in fact, throughout the passage as he talks about God's disciplining his children, is a word from which we get our English word pedagogy, which of course has to do with the whole science of learning, of the whole practice of teaching, and the very word he uses here, paideia, suggests that what God is doing to us is relating to us as a children, even as we pass through suffering, which means that we are passing, as it were, under his disciplining rod. The need to endure suffering in all its varied forms, the writer is saying, stems from the fact that through such suffering, God is carrying out his disciplinary role as a father toward his children. In the normal scheme of things, fathers exercise discipline in the home. And so the rhetorical question, for what son or what son is there whom his father does not discipline, carries with it an exclamatory ring. In other words, what kind of father is that who would be negligent in carrying out discipline in his home? What kind of father is that? And such, the question that such, the question is designed to highlight such a father's sheer dereliction of duty. It is against this backdrop that the writer implicitly asserts that God, our Heavenly Father, does exercise discipline in relation to his children. Indeed, notice what he says in verse 8. He goes on to say, and he says it in the most forceful manner, that the absence of God's discipline in one's life only proves this. It proves that one, after all, is not a child of God. That one is not a part of his family, hence one is not saved. Because here's what he says in verse 8. The writer soberingly warns his readers there in verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, that is to say, all God's children have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. What he is simply saying here then is this, that one of the distinguishing features of those who are truly God's children is the fact that they experience at some point or another the disciplining hand of God in their lives. We discipline our children, not our neighbor's children, right? We dare not discipline our next door neighbor's child. Yes, we might talk to them, but that is as far as we can go in terms of any attempt to change their behavior. We dare not put our hands on them. We dare not spank them. And what the Word of God is saying here is that God disciplines His own. He disciplines those who are 
his family would suggest this, that if one is going on in sin, if one is continually going on in sin and never experience any kind of adversity, any kind of affliction, which would be God's chastening hand, then that person is not a Christian. Paul, in fact, brings this out very, very, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in dealing with the order of the Lord's Supper. Because in the Corinthian church, you had people who were living in sin, living in blatant, known open sin. And here's what Paul says. He says, for this cause, many of you are sick and weak, and some even sleep. And then here's what he says. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, when we are chastened, we are disciplined of the Lord that we might not be condemned with the world. And this is one of the reasons we say, based on our, our reading or understanding of the word of God, that chastisement, that discipline from God, is not designed to hurt us, but to help us be godly. The fact is, God's discipline, uh, we need to understand here when we talk about discipline, because somebody might be saying, well, what have I done for God to discipline me? I'm going through suffering, I'm going through adversity. What have, in the world have I done that God should be disciplining me? And that's a very good question. And the truth is, we need to understand that discipline does not, does not necessarily mean that we have committed some particular sin. Underlying the word discipline is the idea of what? Training. And the fact is, God's discipline may come in at least five forms, and I'll just run them through very quickly for you. When we talk about God's discipline, what are we talking about? The fact is, God's discipline may either be corrective, as in the case of David when he committed adultery with and murder, 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, right up to verse 14. God's discipline in that regard was corrective. It was designed to correct David's behavior. But then God's discipline, secondly, is also preventive. It is presentive as in the case of Paul who received a thought in his flesh to keep him from what? Being puffed up with spiritual pride. Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 10. He says, lest I be exalted beyond measure through the abundance of revelation that I have received. He says, there was given to me a thought in the flesh to keep me from becoming puffed up with pride. And of course, God through that thorn in the flesh for which Paul prayed three times, he begged God that it might remove, be removed from him. God actually was using suffering right there in the life of Paul as a preventive measure against the sin of pride. Discipline may be corrective, discipline may be preventive, but discipline, God's discipline may also be educative. That is, to teach us certain lessons which we could not have otherwise learned apart from suffering. As in the case of Philippians chapter 4, verse 12, Paul is in prison, and here's what Paul says, writing in a context of suffering. He says, I know both how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul is saying here, I learned all this 
in the context of suffering. I know what it is to go hungry. I know what it is to go full. Why? Because I've been taught it. I've learned the secret of being content. Job 36.15 says this, that God delivers the afflicted by their affliction and opens their ears by adversity. In other words, God, through our suffering, educates us, he trains us in the way of righteousness. And then suffering may also be probative. Suffering may also be probative. What do we mean by that? In other words, those sufferings are designed to prove or test us, as in the case of Job, who notwithstanding his reputed godliness, was greatly tried, greatly tested by God. Chapter 1 of Job tells how that Job was a perfect man, upright. The word perfect here doesn't mean sinless perfection. It means he was of mature, godly character. He was upright. There was none like him in all the earth in terms of piety. And yet, God afflicted Job. God sent suffering in the life of Job. Job suffered tremendously. Why? Because those sufferings were means by which God was testing the faith of Job. Indeed, Job could later say in Job 23 and verse 10, But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. And then fifthly, suffering may be purgative. Suffering may be purgative. That is to say, it is designed to purge and purify our faith, and not just our faith, but our character. First Peter chapter 1, verses 6. And seven, that the trial of your faith be much more precious than of gold might be found unto praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So number one, why does God allow us to undergo discipline in the form, in, in, in the form of suffering or suffering that functions as discipline? God exercised discipline, number one, to demonstrate his love for us. And then number two, God administers discipline to distinguish his children from those who are not. But thirdly, notice from our text, God exercises discipline to do us good. He exercises discipline to do us good. Look at verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, for, for they, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he, that is God, disciplines us for our good. Every children listening to me, let me say here that your parents, they are parenting you as best as they know how. Somebody says, well, I don't have good parents. They're my parents are this, my parents are that. Here's what the word of God says. They disciplined us for a short time as it seems best to them. In other words, as best as they understand with all the facts that they have, with all your interests, your best interests at heart, they are doing their very best to parent you, to train you in the way that you should go. But here's the thing. When it comes to God, notice what he says, but he disciplines us for our good. That is to say, his discipline is perfect. 
His discipline is perfect. Why? Because he knows all the facts about us. He knows all our peculiarities. He knows us inside out. And hence, he knows exactly what to administer in terms of chastisement, what to administer in terms of the training, the discipline he administers in our lives. And this tells us, again, that the purpose of the Lord's discipline is not to hurt us, is not to harm us, but to hone and perfect our character. That the Lord's discipline is aimed toward the spiritual improvement of his people. It sort of reminds us of what God said through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 11. Jeremiah is addressing the exiles in their despondency. They were disheartened, shaving under the pressures, the, the, the oppressive uh, system of Babylon. And here's what God told them in their distress. God says there, through the prophet Jeremiah, he says this, For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What is God saying there? Yes, you're chafing. Yes, you're hurting. Yes, you're smarting. You think I'm out to hurt you, but not. No, no, no. I have your best interest at heart. Now we have an application. Sometimes it is true, parents might be harsh. And sometimes they take certain steps. But what we need to understand is this. At the end of the day, they are not intent on making life miserable for you. They are intent on protecting you. They are intent on making the very best out of you. And we need to remember that. Now, how many of us have been through that? Right? We used to think, boy, especially our fathers, they were so harsh. And then you look back and you say, look at what I've been spared from. You look at your friends. You see what has become of them. And you say, listen, I thank God for my parents. I thank God for the discipline. Well, even more so when it comes to God, we are to appreciate the fact that in disciplining us, he's doing nothing but good to us. Now, in the C part of verse 10 on to verse 11, Notice there, the author spells out precisely how God does his children good by way of discipline. How does God do his children good by way of discipline? And this brings us to our third main point, which is the results of God's discipline. The results of God's discipline. First of all, notice God's discipline produces respect for God. It, it produces reverence for God, it produces submission to God. This is implied in verse 9. Notice verse 9. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Now, more often than not, you can tell a child who has good training. You can tell a child who has good training, and many times you see a child who is disrespectful, and you say, aha, that child needs some work. That child needs some work. Somebody is not doing their job well as a parent. And my, you look at some children, and they are so respectful, so courteous, and you say, wow, that parent is doing something right. And the point of verse 9 is that 
as Christians subject themselves to the chastening, disciplining work of God in their lives, the pains, the rigors through which they have been through in, by the providence of God are all designed to generate reverence for God. Just as when we were growing up, we were disciplined by our parents, we learned to what? To respect them. We learned not to talk to our parents any, anyhow, any fashion. We learn to respect them. We learn to reverence them. And that is exactly what the writer is saying here, that through suffering, through discipline, God produces in us reverence and fear for him. Second, discipline. God's discipline produces Christ-likeness. God's discipline produces Christ-likeness, or if you prefer, godliness. Let's look again at the second clause of verse 10. He, the Lord, that is the Lord, disciplines us for our God that we may share his holiness. He disciplines us for good. What does that remind us of? It reminds us of Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, what does that say? And we know that in all things, God works for good to those who love God. And then we ask ourselves the question, what is that good? And verse 29, the context provides the respect in which God works all things for good through sufferings. And we learn there in Romans 8 and verse 29, the, the, what the good consists in, and it consists in this, it consists in conformity to Christ, that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. And that's very much the same idea we have here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10. He disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. Holiness, what is holiness? Holiness is the summary term for God's character, for God's moral purity. And to say that God disciplines us, that we may share his holiness, is to say that God disciplines us so as to transform our character, so as to make us like him. What the writer is actually saying here when he says that we may share his holiness, essentially what he's saying, that we might become godly, that we might become godlike or Christ-like, just as God is holy, even so we are holy, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. So far from being a token of his displeasure, the sufferings, the afflictions we encounter as Christians by way of God's discipline serve to deepen our spiritual lives, to mature our character as his children. The purpose of God's discipline is not merely to punish us Rather, it is to purify us, to make us holy, to make us like him. Now, verse 11 seems to be a side statement regarding the whole matter of discipline and by implication, the Lord's discipline. Here's what he says. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Now, it vertically goes without saying, right? Suffering by its very nature is painful. And the Bible, notice here, notice the realism of the word of God. The realism of biblical faith. What are we talking about here? The fact is, scripture makes no attempt to sugarcoat, to downplay the reality of pain and suffering. The Bible unblushingly, 
unblushingly asserts that no suffering is pleasant. No suffering is pleasant. You see, unlike the teaching of some Eastern religions or even that of New Age thinking, which teach that suffering is an illusion, Scripture admits the reality of pain. Scripture really uh, asserts the reality of being hurt. Scripture, in fact, records that the, in his humanity, in his capacity as our sin-bearer, our Lord Jesus suffered, and he suffered to the point where he even cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our Lord Jesus suffered. And if there's one way we can know that suffering is real, we only have to look at our Lord Jesus on the cross. And scripture suggests, beloved, that just because we are saved, just because we are possessed of faith in God and faith in Christ, does not mean that we'll not know what it is to suffer grief. There are some people who have the idea, well, as a Christian, I should always be smiling, always be joyful, always be on the upside. If I show any kind of uh, being down in the valley, then I am not really spiritual. And that's not true. That's not at all true. In fact, here's what the Apostle Peter writes as he touches on the security of believers in Christ. He says they are rejoicing in their salvation. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6. In this, that is in the security of your salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary. Here's what he says. You have been grieved by various trials. That's how frank the word of God is when it comes to the matter of suffering in the lives of God's children. So it's no mark of spirituality. It's no mark of godliness to deny the reality of suffering to play tough. And so the author of Hebrews truthfully affirms here in Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But notice what he tells us secondly about the nature of discipline. Notice that while painful, discipline is temporary. Here the writer states that discipline is what? For the moment. Peter similarly states in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6 as well as 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 10 that suffering trials are for a little while. Now, admittedly, the moment, the, the, when the Bible talks about suffering is for a moment or for a little while, we must not take that to mean a little while in terms of how we perceive and understand time. Scripture is not speaking of the momentary nature of the Christian suffering from the perspective of our limited time. We know, for example, that there are people who will suffer for weeks, months. There are people who suffer for years. There are people who suffer for decades. There are people, my friends, who suffer. We're talking about God's people, Christians, who suffer to the grave. So the question is, how do we work out? How do we work out this idea that our pains, our trials, our sufferings are for a moment or for a little while? How do we, how do we reckon that? And I believe the key for us to appreciate what Peter is saying here, what the Word of God is saying here, what the writer of Hebrews is saying here, is 2 Corinthians 4, verses 16 through 18. 
Because in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, Paul brings into sharp focus sufferings in relation to eternity. And here's what he says. For this light, momentary affliction, that is what we are going through right now. He says it's light, it's momentary. Is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Notice what he says. As or while we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Notice here what Paul is saying. Paul suggests here that as we focus on unseen realities, as we focus on eternal verities, eternal realities to come, he suggests here that while we are doing that, our sufferings take on a new complexion. We we have a new perspective of suffering. He says there that when we consider the far exceeding weight of glory that awaits us in eternity, all that we are going through right now simply appears momentary and light. They're going to appear light, they're going to appear momentary and not worthy of being compared to the glory that is to be revealed in us, Romans 8, verse 17. Remember what Paul says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul is saying here, the more I focus on eternity, the glories that are to come, what God will eventually make of me, suffering I see in a new light. In the B part of verse uh, 11, Hebrews 12, 11, the writer continues to cite the results of God's discipline. He says, there, or quote, he says, later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It produces, he says, the fruit of righteousness. If you circle that word later, it's, when we read, it's good to read closely scripture. And that word later, implies something very important. The word later implies a passage of time. And as such, it speaks of the process, the process through which God works with respect to training us, with respect to honing us, with respect to maturing us. In other words, God's discipline takes time to work and effect his purpose in our life. That's why it's a lifelong endeavor. That's why discipline is not just for this season. It is not done once and for all, but it is something that continues right throughout the course of our lives. And he says, notice later, verse 11b, it yields the piece of a fruit. Of righteousness. God's discipline then produces righteousness. It produces godliness, Christ-likeness, as we saw earlier. Here it produces righteousness. Righteousness here is the fruit or outgrowth of holiness that's mentioned in verse 10. Holiness, remember we said, was being Christ-like. Righteousness, that is, deeds that we do Practical works of right in terms of right living are the outgrowth, are the 
evidences of holiness. So that not only does God, God's discipline result in transformation of character, but God's discipline, we notice, results in transformation of conduct. When he disciplines us that we may share his holiness, that we can contemplate from the standpoint of an, an internal work. And then righteousness, the fruit of righteousness, would be the outworking of that state of holiness. God works not only in our character in terms of what we are inwardly, but God works through our conduct, what we exhibit in our day-to-day lives. Through the, through the discipline he takes us as his children, he exposes all the sins, all the flaws, all the warts. And he shapes, he hones all the various aspects of our lives into his righteous standard. You'll notice as we come to a close that verse 11b makes mention of the fruit of righteousness in connection with peace. The peaceable fruit of righteousness. And what this suggests is that among the beneficial effects of the chastening, disciplining work of God in our lives is that of affording us peace, is that of affording us tranquility of soul in which we come to find ourselves in a state of rest, in a state of contentment, contentment in the Lord. God's discipline then is productive of righteousness and God's discipline is productive of peace. Look at how the prophet Isaiah juxtaposes these two in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 17. He states there the twin effect of righteousness and peace. He says the effect of righteousness will be peace and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. This peace speaks of the stability, the steadiness in our character, in our lives that comes as a result of God's discipline. First Peter chapter 4, and the God of all grace, was called you according to his eternal glory after you have suffered a while. Strength me, strengthen you, establish you, settle you. That's peace. And so the question as we close this afternoon is what then do we do with these truths regarding suffering and God's discipline? And I'll just make brief comments. For sure, We should, in times of trials, in times of adversities, understand and be reminded that God is actively involved in our lives. God is not standing back helplessly and just looking at us and saying, look at what my child has come to. Look at what has happened. No, the sufferings, the adversities, the trials are ordered by God, they're purposefully designed by God. They come into our lives not by accident, but by his personal design. Through these trials, through these hardships, what is he doing? He's disciplining us, he's training us. And he does this because he accepts us and welcomes us as his children. That's his MO. That's his mode of operation. Every child he receives, every child that comes into his family, he scourges them, he trains them, he disciplines them, all with the aim, all with the intent of refining their faith, their character. Hence, we should never become bitter on account of these 
experiences, we should see them not as unnecessary burdens he imposes on us, rather we should see them as tokens of his gracious blessings, of his intent to do us good and not evil. May the Lord deeply impress these truths on our hearts and minds. For his name's sake, amen.